Good morrow, afternoon, or evening, wherever you are, children. Um, I'm Crow, and this is... This is Fern! And welcome to Crow and Fern's Guide to Weird Fiction, Folklore, Mythology, and Everything in Between, where I, Crow, talk to you about weird fiction, Fern talks to you about folklore and mythology, and together, together, we cover everything (laughs) in between. (laughs) Yes, we do! Okay, before we start things off, how are you, Fern? How was oh, I'm your good. week? Was it a good oh, week? Oh, it, <laughs> it was a busy week, but it was a good week. So I can't complain. <laughs> yeah. Nuts. I realized nice. editing all of these episodes that I always repeat the last thing you say, and I'm not sure why I do it. Like, for example, I, I've say, noticed that in our friendship in general. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know why I do that. I it's, it's not like you. <laughs> I'm processing it. I'm processing what you're saying. It's okay. They say if like you mirror someone, it's because you like them. So I'm going to take it as a compliment. Because I, I, we're not doing video calls. Neither of us have makeup on. Um, nope. So we're doing voice calls. <laughs> sure don't. I mirror you. <laughs> I do have makeup on, though. I just came home from a night out. So I still have my black lipstick on and my um, mascara running down everywhere. So, <laughs> well- yeah. It's morning for me, and uh, yeah, I'm working from home today, so no, no makeup. No makeup. (laughs) Okay, so, and how are you, dear listener? Tell us. Follow our social media and tell us how you are, and tell us if anything weird happened to you this week. Uh, We we would love to know. Maybe we can include you in our next episode. (laughs) The weird thing that happened to random McRandom Pants. Um... I, lo- okay. I kind of like that name, though. Right? Random. It has a pants. ring to it. They they wear a suit with question marks on it, like the Riddler. Um, I feel like it'd be like a, an ex- adventurer who's running out to, like, sea and fighting ooh. pirates and all of that, but, like, badly, like, kind of a dumb adventurer who keeps doing stuff that he probably shouldn't and it blows up in his face i'm gonna create a whole lore here like it's it's already existing in my head i see him fighting an octopus and like maybe losing <laughs> maybe losing so there's a chance my He's vote got a goes chance. to random mcrandom pants that's right tweet us and tell the us third. if you think that random mcrandom pants survives the octopus i'm gonna make a poll on spotify i'm gonna do a poll spotify. do you think random mcrandom pants overcomes the giant octopus is it a giant octopus or is it just no, like a no, tiny one no, he's no. just really bad it's a tiny one yeah no it's a tiny he, one random random pants doesn't fight giant octopuses or octopi or whatever octopi. you think it, the, yeah but um because he's just not that good i think he's waded into the shallows and startled an octopus and then like i don't know got it on his face or something (laughs) i'm gonna ask my mom to draw us a portrait of random (laughs) random pants and he will be our mascot (laughs) (laughs) yeah okay today we're going to talk about guess guess what we're covering today 
Black Mirror! Black Mirror! And I know some people are going to be like, is Black Mirror feared uh, feared fiction? Is Black Mirror (laughs) weird fiction? I don't know. Listen, it's technically one of the newer genres, and it's not as easily defined as fantasy, horror, and sci-fi, because weird fiction isn't defined by the worlds that the author the like the writers or i don't know authors or artists build and it's not defined by the characters it's defined by the feelings that they evoke in the reader it's not even defined by certain themes even though some people will say that weird fiction is you know like the theme of the unknown and the things uh-huh. that drive you crazy because you just can't wrap your head around them as a puny weak human but no to me it evokes certain feelings, which is the feeling of something being wrong, other world worldliness, things we don't understand. And yes, I consider Black Mirror weird fiction in the way that it explores the absurd in human nature. And because this month's theme is... Serial killers. Serial killers. <laughs> which episode are we going to talk about? I don't know. I, don't, I haven't watched all of Black Mirror. <laughs> crocodile we're gonna talk about crocodile i'm not sure i've seen this one but maybe that's better <laughs> yeah maybe you will be surprised by okay. what's going to happen in crocodile okay is it is it kafka-esque no i don't okay so it's good it's a good episode okay. um but i wouldn't call it you know artful enough to be considered Kafka. Oh, oh. Yeah. <laughs> like, She's starting out with the birds. I love so it. Actually, Black Mirror <laughs> is, again, um, take a shot of your favorite drink every time I say that this is one of my favorite somethings. It's one of my favorite series, Black Mirror. I really like it. It can be corny sometimes and very heavy-handed on the metaphors, but, you know, mm-hmm. yeah, I like it. I'm not shitting on Black Mirror or anything. So, um, Crocodile, she has the actual title of to it. Yes. Oh, I was going to say, she has ranted to me about it many times, so I can vouch yes. for her liking it. She, yes. <laughs> so, Crocodile, my children, um, the title of our episodes will be Black Mirror, Crocodile, and the Art of the Unsympathetic Character. Oh. Okay. There's a big difference between an unsympathetic character and a badly written one. And that's what we're going to be Uh looking at. Um, And how to include unsympathetic characters in your works, basically, without failing miserably. Uh, through analyzing Crocodile. So Crocodile is the uh, third episode of the fourth season of Black Mirror. Um, And it was actually written by the creator of Black Mirror, Charlie Brooker. Um, and a lot of people have debated why the episode is called Crocodile. Everyone thought it was Crocodile as in Crocodile Tears. Tears. So, yeah, keep that in mind. Maybe, you know, maybe I'll tell you why it's called Crocodile. Maybe I won't. We don't know, you know? Just keep that in mind. But there's no actual crocodile then, No, unfortunately. No. You know, crocodilias, I, I think, like, as a general thing, um... Freak me out, so I'm okay with that. (laughs) (laughs) That's fair. That's fair. Um, Crocodiles are fucking terrifying. I think, yeah, yeah, they they scare me the same way that... I feel like just because of the fact that they 
swim in murky waters like murky waters are terrifying in general and then you add sometimes I'll be swimming and I'll forget my goggles and so you know everything looks really murky and blurry and my brain will be like there's probably a crocodile in this pool Um, in a country where crocodiles are not native (laughs) and I I will freak out and get out of the pool I kind of get that (laughs) so Crocodile thrusts us straight into the action. We're given less than two minutes of a man and a woman driving down a scenic snowy valley road singing Strict Machine by Goldtrap, smoking weed, Mm. and seeming to have a jolly good fucking time. Before they crash into a cyclist sending him flying over their car. Oh no. Oh no. Yep. So, um, the man and the woman go to check the scene. Uh, The woman, whose name is Mia Nolan, is horrified and wants to call the police like a normal person. Um, Uh But the man stops her. He reminds her that um, he had a bit too much to drink. And obviously, if the police comes, he's going to go to jail if they're caught. Right. So as he should for driving drunk. Like, this is why you don't drive drunk. And smoke weed in the fucking car while while you're driving, you absolute fucking asshole. Um, yeah, if it's if it's legal where you are, have fun. Literally, but, you it's know, fine. Like in a Don't safe do place. it and drive. Right? Yeah. Yeah. At, you, at home, <laughs> it's exactly. your friend's home. You know, somewhere where you're walking. Maybe I don't know, but do, not with driving. <laughs> exactly. Not while you're driving. So, much to the woman's horror, Mia, uh, the man tries to convince her to help him wrap the cyclist up in a sleeping bag and toss him and his bicycle off a nearby fucking cliff. It's I'd a be harrowing... like, fuck, no, I'm calling 911. Like, no, yeah. no, no. This is exactly. a whole new set of crimes, and they're gonna be even worse, especially for her. <laughs> she does resist, though. Like, she keeps saying no, she's not gonna do it, she's absolutely not gonna do it, but she sort of caves in the end. And it's a harrowing wait, wait, scene. Okay. You can, yeah. I, I I, need to clarify something. Yeah. Are they absolutely sure that the man is dead? Yeah. Because that, Yeah, they are. Okay. They are. Okay. Like, actually, now that I think about it, they don't check his pulse. They don't really go to check. He's just not moving and he's mangled. But Well, and this is yeah, cuz this is a big thing with hit that and adds run another accidents. layer. Yeah. Yeah, to the, how fucked the, up well, this, yeah. What some of the hit and run cases that I've heard about were made worse by the fact that um if pol- if an ambulance had been called, they potentially could have saved the person. Yeah, uh, and that always makes it worse because yeah. you know, like that person didn't have to die, but exactly. because the person was being an asshole and ran away and didn't report the crime, they did. Exactly, exactly. So, like I said, it's a harrowing scene. You can hear the wind blowing, see them stuffing rocks into the sleeping bag, coupled with the howling music, the long sharp draw of strings as the camera pans out to showcase the snow-blanketed valleys peppered with black rock and an ink-blue ocean. This was filmed in Iceland, by the way, and it was inspired oh. by, like, Scandinavian neo-noir, so that's why you get a lot oh, of that. Oh, 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 they don't okay. mention where it's supposed to be set, but it was filmed in Iceland, so you get a lot of that, you know, very sparse building. Um, there's no, mm-hmm. like, you know, towering mm-hmm. si- skyscrapers or everything. Um 
everything seems very minimalistic. The um, scenery, the background is usually filled with a lot of negative space, a lot of emptiness. And that gives you a lot, that gives you the feeling of sort of isolation. Um, uh-huh. It's, it, and it also invokes feelings of like agoraphobia, you know, just like uh-huh. wide open uh-huh. spaces. You feel very alone while watching this. And for good reason, they intended to do that. So you get, um, what, do I, what I was saying, snow-blanketed valleys peppered with black rock and an ink-blue ocean that spread out as far as the eye can see. They swing the sleeping bag off a cliff and follow it with the bicycle. We don't see or hear either hit the water. Cut to title card, Crocodile. Okay. Ooh. <laughs> yeah, spooky. We're then it's a rough way to start s- out. <laughs> We're then shown another snow-blanketed valley and hear a woman practicing a speech in her bathroom. And then we're shown that the woman is Mia. She's older. Her hair is now in a pixie cut. It used to be longer and it wasn't blonde. So it was, I think, reddish. And now it's like platinum blonde because when you're rich, you dye your hair platinum blonde. It's true. I've seen it. Um, so she lives in a huge, gorgeous mansion, uh, with, you know, the kind with floor to ceiling windows everywhere, a kitchen and slate and marble and sharp onyx minimalistic furniture. She has a husband and a son. She says goodbye to them. And then she heads off to speak at an important conference that covers, I don't know, it was something about the environment, like how to be sustainable, how like sustainable design and that kind of stuff from what I understood. Okay. So, yeah. We learned that Mia is now an incredibly successful architect. It's been 15 years since the accident. Uh, the man Mia is married to is not the man from the beginning. Um, the man in the beginning's name is Rob, by the way. She hasn't spoken to Rob in three years. But Rob manages to find Mia because he finds out she's speaking at the architecture forum slash conference. Um, he messages her before she leaves her home and asks if they can meet. So they meet at her hotel room. They trade niceties. Rob doesn't seem to have gotten anywhere in life aside from getting sober. Um, mm-hmm. And then Which he tells is an her... an accomplishment, so like, good for him yeah. for that one. But that might, yeah. <laughs> but then he tells her why he's really here. Can you guess? Uh-oh. Because he, he knows what she did and he wants to blackmail her. Or, no, he wait, did it no, with no, her. No, he's the one. Yeah, um, Rob was the guy from the beginning who hit the cyclist and they both sort of got rid know. of the body. Oh, okay, okay. I, so I, why do you think he's here? Because he's, I don't know, it's not going to be good. <laughs> it's not good. Oh, well, it's kind of good, but it's too little, too fucking late. Oh, he, he wants feels to bad talk- now. Yes, exactly. He wants to talk about the accident because he recently read a newspaper art- article where he finds... God, what is wrong with my mouth? Uh, he recently <laughs> read a newspaper article where he found out that the dead cyclist's wife is still waiting for him, holding out hope that he's still alive because obviously they uh, never found the body. That's... Uh, I know. This is always like the dark side of true crime like the yeah well i mean it's all dark but the like people the, left the really heart-wrenching part is when you yeah yeah the family the people who love the person like it's just it gets you it gets you in the feels exactly so what rob wants to do 
to get over that feeling of heart fuckery is he wants to write the wife a letter to tell her what happened to her husband and to basically confess. Because he says to Mia that it's his way of achieving the eighth step in his, you know, Alcoholics Anonymous program, make amends to anyone he's harmed. So Killing a person counts as harming them, definitely. uh, Yeah, it counts. But you know what? This is the part that kind of messed me up. Because... On one hand, you kind of feel for Rob because you're like, okay, you know, better late than never. He's trying to make up for things. But on the other hand, you can't help but realize how selfish his motivations are because he's uh-huh. not doing it because it's the right thing to do. If he cared about the right thing to do, he wouldn't have done a hit and run. He wouldn't have gotten rid of the fucking body, you know? He wouldn't he didn't even leave the body there for people to find. He fucking tossed it off a cliff. And when Mia resisted because Mia immediately took out her phone and was like, "We need to call 911." And he was the one who convinced her not to, you know, and got really aggressive when she wanted to do it, which I don't even blame her like, you know, as a woman on her own in this like isolated freaking road where no one drives being stuck with a man who just killed someone and is desperate to get out of it like i can only imagine how terrified she would have been right yeah so he's only doing it to soothe his own conscience to like you know achieve his eighth step it's not necessarily because he actually gives a shit About Mia, though. Okay, so in the moment, yeah, I get, like, she is afraid. She could ha- potentially be afraid for her life under yeah. those circumstances. Yeah. But you still, like, once you're away from him, then you go to the police, you That's know? fair. That's actually fair. <laughs> That's true. Once the danger is passed, because he, clearly he hasn't been hanging around her, like, all that time to make sure she doesn't talk so she could have talked if she wanted to so i she's not innocent in my mind either uh she's less culpable than he is certainly but she should have gone to the police after she got away from him exactly and we'll get to that because that's part of the reason why mia is not a badly written character but she's an unsympathetic character right Okay. But we'll get okay. to that. So Mia's horror. Uh, so sorry. Um, Mia begs him not to, uh, like go to the like write the letter. He tells her that he's not going to mention her name. He's not going to bring her into it. But she's like, obviously, they can track these things back down to us now. She's like, she's absolutely terrified that the police will be able to use modern day technology to involve her in it. And she's built a whole new life for herself. She doesn't want to ruin it. She pleads with Rob, tells him she's married. She has a son. And then she starts yelling, reminds him that she kept this buried for him, despite all the guilt and shame that she's felt throughout the years. She reminds him that it was his idea. She begs him to reconsider. But Rob tells her he's made up his mind. Uh Uh-huh. When he starts sensing her growing anxiety, he decides it's time for him to leave. The scene rises from silence to that cold wind whistling, howling, the strings shivering and screeching again. The music is very well done um, in this episode, by the way. They just do like an amazing job with using string instruments and it really builds on that anxiety that you feel, that you feel contrasting between silence and those. Mia throws her arms around Rob and then, as you know, the music rises and rises, she slams him to the wall. They fall what? down together. Yep. 
<laughs> you think she's hugging him. It's really intense because it looks like she's hugging him and just like very aggressively hugging and not letting him go. And he starts getting anxious and he's like, get the, get the fuck off me. And then she suddenly slams him to the wall. They fall down together and we hear the wet plop of Rob's head hitting the floor. Oh, oh, yes. yes. He doesn't die, though. He's just out of it enough so Mia can get on top of him. She shoves her forearm into his windpipe and squeezes, squeezes Uh. and squeezes until we hear a sickening crack and watch the life Uh. leave Rob's eyes. Yep. Blood pooling from his nose. She is culpable now, and that is even worse. (laughs) See, up to this point... Because that's very intentional. (laughs) Exactly. Up to this point, I would still call Mia a sympathetic character. Why? Because, okay, so do you know the difference between sympathy and empathy? Yeah, sympathy, like empathy is like I can, I feel feelings towards it because it's something that I have also gone through. Um, Like you, like I can empathize with people who, uh, I don't know. I think you know what it is. You're just not yeah, yeah. Uh, finding the, the words. But, like, I, I yeah. understand what you're but, saying, but sympathy, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, sympathy is, like, you feel, have feelings. The feeling is towards people that you haven't been in their same situation, but you can imagine, you know? Exactly. So, basically, one definition of it is sympathy is acknowledging that the person is going through a struggle, and trying to support them and give them comfort. Sometimes it's even like, you know, when you pity the person for going through what they're going through. Uh Empathy is actually understanding what the person's feeling because you've had a similar experience, right? Which is what I was trying to say. I don't know how well I worded it, but that's where I was going. So, yes. I get you. No, I get you. (laughs) Um, it's, It's a very sort of subtle difference, but it, like... It does make a difference because mm-hmm. I would say most of us don't have the experience of killing someone and having to get rid of the body. Ugh, you never, ever, ever want to that. <laughs> exactly. But I could say that um, we can sympathize with Mia in the beginning, especially because it's a real, like, Some of us may have been in a situation where, you know, like, let's say you've had an abusive partner or a manipulative friend or just, you know, not had the confrontation skills to say no. And you've been put in a shitty situation where you were forced to do something like, let's say that goes against your morals, you know, Mm -hmm. it doesn't have to be killing someone. It doesn't have to be that. It could be something really simple, you know. Yeah. So let's say, um, you know, you got a friend who uh, peer pressured you into cheating on a test or into bullying someone and you hated yourself for it. But like, you know, you went through it back then because you didn't have the backbone to stand up against them. Right. So we can sort of we can sympathize with Mia. We can kind of empathize with her. And I think up to this point with what she did with Rob, do I think it was the right thing to do? No. Do I feel bad for her? Yes, because I feel like she panicked. We don't know her reasons. They're never explained of why she remained quiet for 15 years, even though she has like she wasn't speaking to Rob as frequently. And it isn't really implied that their relationship continued past, um, you know, the thing that happened. So why she sat on this for so long, I'm not sure. 
Uh-huh. I think the reason is, though, because she got rid of the body with him. So the minute uh-huh. she did that, that was going to follow her for the rest of her life. There was no going back. Like, what is she supposed to tell the police? You know? Uh-huh. He didn't, like, technically, he didn't force her to get rid of the body. And even if he did, that would be incredibly difficult to prove in a court of law that, like, you know, he forced me to do something like this. Yeah, right? It's always complicated. But, it, like I said, it would have helped her case if she'd gone directly to the police. To the police. And, exactly. Uh, to just at least that, tell. Yeah. Yeah, that would have been a lot more believable as opposed to, like, them finding it out on their own. So... Uh, Mia's horrified. Um, she, but, but she manages to regain her composure rather quickly when she realizes that the curtains in the hotel room were open and outside an automated pizza delivery machine. Wouldn't we all want to have those? Has just run in. Yeah. It's, it's like a, a van, but instead of just being like a pizza delivery van, it's like automated. So you just like, you know, click things on a screen and it delivers your pizza. It has slots and the pizzas just come out. That's what I love about, I was, about Black Mirror. I'll talk about it in a minute. The, yeah. The yeah, advanced future tech. I always assumed we'd just get drone deliveries first, like not something that actually ran along the roads. Although there was a book that said why that wouldn't wor- work. I think it was New York. Yeah, it has been attempted. It has been attempted, and and um, there there was uh, people would try and use their drones to attack those the delivery drones to steal the oh yeah the, the pirates that were being yeah. delivered yeah yeah, yeah. and yeah. then the police got drones and they got to chase the, the yeah. drones of the like thieves and they were like this is the most fun we've ever had in our job <laughs> the drone <laughs> wars of twenty sixteen yeah Love yep it. yep. So, so um, basically outside the automated pizza delivery machine or van has just run into a pedestrian leading to bystanders gathering to watch and people sort of taking a look out their windows. Mia quickly shuts the curtains and the blinds um, and then she decides to cover her tracks. First, she rents an X-rated show on the TV. I'm not sure why she chose an X-rated show. I'm really not sure. Um, uh-huh. She orders room service, and using the trolley delivered to um, her room, she bundles up Rob's body so she can deliver it to her car. Um, and I think one of the coldest scenes in the episode is that of Mia sitting in her car, which is parked outside a garbage disposal plant. Rob is bundled in the back seat, his limbs looking almost mangled like that of a cotton-stuffed doll. As Mia waits uh-huh. for the plant to clear up, she gets a call from her husband, who she calmly speaks to. Then she speaks to her son, telling him how proud she is of him as the camera moves to focus on Rob's lifeless body. So, yeah. Uh, and yeah, the thing yeah, that's about always, Mia. Yeah. No, I was going to say that's always one of the things that people call out about, like, the really scary killers is how they can, yeah. like do something like that and then just go on and um i don't know continue on but that's the thing okay i think you know what i'll save it until we get a little further in so you understand what i'm trying to say um as soon as she gets the chance though um mia drags rob's body to the plant and she drops it into one of the tubs i don't know what it's called i don't know if it's a vat of acid or something i couldn't find out 
but she drops it in there and we hear a sizzling sound. She Mm. then drives back to the hotel. She sleeps. She wakes up the next morning. She pays for her room, movie, and room service like nothing happened. Yeah. And that's when we're introduced to another character, an insurance company agent who is a Muslim woman named Shazia. And I thought that was really cool because I have watched so much, like I've consumed so much Western media and I don't think I see Muslim characters represented anywhere near enough. There's not a lot. I feel like they did a good job here. They put a Muslim woman. Her name is Shazia. She is so cute. She has a husband and a little boy. So super adorable little family. Um, So, okay. Crocodile is one of Black Mirror's more nearby alternate future sci-fi episodes. So, cars don't fly we have music from 2009 playing clubs tvs are still like they still have screens they're not holograms or projected through the walls of our home but there are hints of technology that isn't otherwise available to us like the automated pizza delivery van and memory corroborators like the one used by shazia oh um yeah So memory corroborators are made up of uh, small square panels that are attached to your forehead and like uh, they're they're attached to the agent, the insurance company's agent's forehead and the viewer's forehead and they access your engram. So an engram is basically um, a theorized unit of memory storage. Like um, there's a theory that... um, what's it called like memories are formed by physical changes that affect our neurons and that's how Uh we form memories that's how we retrieve them so whenever we experience something um physiologically emotionally it sort of um leads to physical changes in our neurons and that's how our brain stores memories it's like a theory that was um, a theory that a, uh, what's it called, a zoologist and evolutionary biologist called Richard Wolfgang Seaman. He came up with that. Um, okay. So, yeah. Okay. Basically, uh, what these memory corroborators do is that they, uh, they access the engrams and they project our memories onto a screen for people to view like movies. The projections aren't 100% accurate, they're subjective and they're usually emotional. So they're what we remember in the moment that we have the memory corroborators attached to us. So it's really cool, like in one of the scenes, she has it attached to someone and he has his eyes closed and he's trying to recall the memory. So while he was recalling the memory, he's like, I was walking down the street and I saw a woman in a um, red coat. And Shazia, having viewed that memory with someone else, corrects the man and she's like actually the woman was wearing a yellow coat so the memory of the woman changes on the screen because he remembers that oh actually it wasn't a red coat yeah yeah oh man okay that's kind of cool that's kind of cool it is isn't it though um and they're really cool yeah go ahead sorry no i just said yeah go on yeah um so in this particular instance, uh, Shazia is investigating the pedestrian that got hit outside of Mia's hotel room. So first she goes to the pedestrian himself. She uses the engram to see if he can recall the scene because the pizza delivery van's uh, camera wasn't working and the CCTV was sabotaged by a bunch of kids. 
Um, she uses a bottle of beer to help jog his memory because apparently scent is a really good way to jog people's memories. It, it really yeah, I've is. Yeah, I heard that. Yeah, I, I have heard that before. And it is one of those things like when you get the smell and you're like, oh, okay, yeah. It's, uh, it's actually one of the tools. Um, there's this really good book that uh, I'm going to link and that I'm probably going to use um, at some point. It's called uh, Word Painting. Oh, so okay. it's, yeah. Um, so uh, Word Painting, uh, a guide to writing more descriptively. Um, it's basically a book that just tells you how to improve your descriptions. It's by uh, Rebecca McClanahan. Um, and one of the things she says is that a really good way of trying to create an image in your reader's head when you don't want to rely on visual stimuli is by using scent. So when you describe the scent of rain or wet grass or autumn leaves, you can put the reader in the scene better than you can if, like, let's say you describe the color of the autumn leaves, you know? Uh-huh. So, yeah, so like, uh, because, like we said, scent draws on memory much faster than all of the other senses combined. Um, so, yeah, anyway. Yeah, that makes sense. So Yeah, I've, I've noticed that too, yeah. so. Yeah. So what she does, uh, Shazia, like I said, she uses a bottle of beer because there's a bar on the street where the pedestrian got hit and she says it makes the whole place smell like a bar. Um, And so the pedestrian can only recall a woman in a yellow coat, which he sees before being hit by the van. So he only focuses on the woman. He can't really see anything else. He can't remember anything else because, you know, head trauma. So Shazia, yeah. Go ahead. No, I just said, yeah, yeah, head trauma, that's not something you want to mess with. It really is not. And And we will talk a lot about head trauma (laughs) in my later episodes (laughs) for this month. (laughs) FYI, that's coming. That's going to be like an in-depth topic. (laughs) It's actually a thing that a lot of... um, because this month's theme, again, if you didn't know, is about serial killers. And um, a lot of them have experienced head trauma as children, just so you know. Just an FYI. Um, so, uh, what, what was I saying? So, Shazia has to continue her investigation from there. She finds the woman in the yellow coat. Um, because in this world, they have face scanners that allow insurance companies to search people through their faces. Like, for example, if she got an image of the woman in the yellow coat and it's accurate from memory, then she can use the face scanner. I think that's, like, honestly, I don't blame them for it. I don't want to be the butthole that's like, that's not really realistic. Because they have to do something, you know. Sci-fi has to include some sense of um, altered realism. But I would say that most of the people, like, in my memory, I can't really remember people's faces as accurately as this dude does, the way that it shows up on the screen, you know? Like, I don't know. Some people are really good at that. I've noticed, like, because I I feel like I'm bad at that, too. Uh, I can think of, like, running across people that I really should have recognized that I didn't. (laughs) But I recognize uh, them, like, in, like... Mm-hmm. I recognize them if I see them. I know who these people are. I don't forget. But like if I'm trying to recall, yeah, like I don't think hard. I would ever ever be able to describe anyone to a sketch artist. No, what what I'm saying is there are I think the 
how people process faces varies uh, a lot from person to person. And some people have really good facial memory, whereas others yeah. don't. And so don't he really. could just potentially be someone with better face memory than... Maybe. W- yeah, because I, I would say mine is pretty bad, but I've noticed that other people do really, really well with it, you know, so... Maybe. <laughs> Maybe. So, anyway, she finds the woman in the yellow coat in real life, and... um. Oh, and there's, they also have this other kind of technology where apparently from your memory alone, they can detect the speed of vehicles, which must not be too accurate, but whatever, you know? So, uh-huh. um, unfortunately, the woman in the yellow coat didn't see the moment of impact either, so Shazia goes on uh, identifying another person, and this time it's a dentist. The dentist's office was right across from Mia's hotel room. Um, and the dentist was perving on a naked guy in the hotel room under Mia's room. Oh, no. Oh, no. (laughs) Yes, yes. The guy had a really chiseled butt, so I don't really blame him. Um, (laughs) (laughs) So don't be a peeping Tom unless the guy has a chiseled butt. That is Dr. Crow's advice. (laughs) Yes, that is my medical advice. You're welcome, children. Um, so, uh... A butt-loving dentist guy remembers seeing Mia. He didn't see the incident. He just saw her staring at the crash um, through her window. But the dentist, unfortunately, didn't see the actual crash. So Shazia has to find Mia. And also in this scene, uh, we find out that people's memories are um, private unless they showcase you hurting yourself or other people. So kind of like how in therapy, um, your therapist isn't allowed to say anything unless you threaten to hurt yourself or other people. And they have ways of like actually identifying whether you have intention or are just saying stuff. So anyway... Um, Mia, on the other hand, uh, gets back home looking tense, distracted around her family. She tries to drown her sorrows with two glasses of wine. She goes out to scrub her van with bleach from the inside out. Shazia finds Mia, who lives 50 miles out of town and in bumfuck nowhere. She's worried Mia won't talk because she thinks that, according to the hotel receptionist, Mia might be embarrassed about sharing her memories since she was watching porn movies in her room. That's totally why Mia won't want to talk to you, Shazia, my poor baby. (laughs) (laughs) This is when things start to get fucked up. Shazia shows up, and it's like, again, the drive is very scenic, but that's not why they're showing that scene to you. It's because they're trying to tell you that this place is absolutely isolated. It's just miles and miles of open road and like literally open plains of just snowy nothingness. It's like there's Uh clusters where people live. And you see other human beings, but most of it is just negative space, wide open plains where of just nothing. You're alone. If your car gets screwed up, you're fucked, you know? So yeah, yeah. they hammer that in at uh, that point. So um, Shazia shows up. And Mia admits that she saw the accident, but doesn't want to talk about it. And Shazia tells her, uh-huh, boo-hoo, you have to, because it's a legal requirement that if you saw the accident, you cooperate with the insurance company's investigation, and that if you refuse, Shazia has to inform the police. 
So Mia lets her in, not knowing about the memory corroborator. Shazia Wait, tells so her, is this yeah, a piece of technology she's never come across or apparent like I think she's come across it, but she thinks that only the police are allowed to use it. But Shazia tells her that no, I think um, from what I remember, um, insurance companies are also now allowed to use them. Oh, OK. So Shazia tells her that she, like, you know, obviously Mia is super stressed about this, but Shazia tells her she doesn't care what Mia was up to in her hotel room. What's private is private. She doesn't mention, by the way, that she has to report it to the police um, if, you know, she finds out that Mia was trying to hurt herself or other people um, because it, it just doesn't come up. She just tells her, you know, what's private is private. That's it. So uh-huh. Mia thinks this means Shazia knows what she did to Rob because literally all she says is that I don't care what you did in your hotel room. What's private is private. She doesn't know that she's talking about the porn movie. Porn. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so th- if there's no reason for like sh- Mia to have done the porn movie, maybe she just wanted to watch porn. Like, let's just put that out there. <laughs> I'm not... <laughs> I'm not, you know what? I'm like, like I said, me is an unsympathetic character. Fuck her. I don't care. I ain't gonna defend but, her. Watch okay, porn. Kid, Shame her. Shame her. I, okay. So here's the thing. Like if, if I'm not going to judge people for watching porn, but like there I'm is judging this everyone. thing. I'm kidding. Watch <laughs> porn, guys. There is this it's thing a healthy where, <laughs> where some of the, um, serial killers or killers or whatever, in some cases, we know that they have like sex or watch porn after they kill and it's kind Ooh. of like a a high and I, now I'm kind of wondering if that was like what Mia was doing if she was like all I don't she know she didn't watch it though she didn't actually watch the porn she just rented the movie because she was using it as part of her alibi that she was in the hotel room oh, okay. watching the thing you know all right, and she. I guess I don't she just think thought, like, if people knew it was porn, then people wouldn't ask her about it. I guess because they'd be maybe. like, "Oh, I don't want to know about that." Or maybe like because someone saw a guy go into her room, maybe she wanted to be like, "Oh, we had the hanky panky." Oh, oh, you know what? That makes sense. Okay, we that did that does the nasty. <laughs> that does make a little more sense. She's trying to yeah. create a narrative. Maybe. I'm not really sure why she did it, but yeah. So, yeah, she thinks that Shazia's talking about the fact that she um, butchered her boyfriend. Um, so there's a chilling scene where Mia is making Shazia coffee, and she fixates on a set of knives on her counter, as if she's considering oh. what she could do to get rid of Shazia for a second. Mm-hmm. But she then excuses herself to go to the bathroom and tries to warp her own memories, repeating that she was on her own, she watched porn, she ate food, she was on her own, okay? When she returns uh, and is hooked to the corroborator, she intentionally puts the bottle of beer down without sniffing it because Shazia tells her, oh, you know, it'll jog your memory. So when Shazia like turns uh, to focus on the memory corroborator, Uh, Mia just puts it down because she doesn't want to jog her memory. She... Right. Okay. So she just wants to focus on the accident. Um, And she does remember the accident clearly. We see the accident. We see the moment of collision. Shazia's happy with it. Perfect, right? 
Unfortunately, mm-hmm. Mia's anxiety causes her to project pictures of her killing Rob. And then them, like Rob and Mia killing the cyclists. Flashes of these images play through over and over on the corroborator, much to Shazia's horror, as she realizes what Mia was really up to in her room. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That, well, and it was, we all knew it was going to happen. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Basically. Shazia tries to play it cool. She simply starts to pack up and tells Mia she's got everything she needs now. Mia seems to sense that something is wrong with Shazia's Shazia's demeanor. So she follows her to the door, apologizing for being curt with her earlier, and she keeps repeating. This is like very unsettling. She keeps going, so you got everything you needed, right? You got everything you needed just to try to sort of, you know, get to what it is exactly that Shazia saw. And then unprompted, she tells her um, that, you know, sometimes she gets these mad thoughts that don't really mean anything. Um, and, you know, Shazia is oh. just like nodding and being like, uh-huh, mm-hmm, okay, that's cool. And she's trying to get into her car. And you know what this reminds me of? Um, uh, like every serial killer ever who has, like, tried to lie about their what they did. <laughs> yes. <laughs> the dumb excuses they make. Yes, but also what it reminds me of is, you know, like in dreams, like let's say you're in a dream and you know someone who's like a killer or someone who's going to hurt you is outside your door, but you can't seem to lock your door quickly enough or you're trying to run away, but your legs won't move or you can't find the right key to get out, like that kind of tension. Mm -hmm. Yeah, like the tension you feel in your jaw, your arms, your trembling fingers, the sweaty palms. And then, you know, the string music starts up again and screeching and undulating and pulling your lungs tighter and tighter because Shazia's car is not starting. And Mia shows up outside the window with a rock that she uses to smash through the window. Yeah. Yep. I saw yes. that one coming. Well, because you know, like here. as soon as as soon as she thinks that Shazia has seen that stuff, she's gonna try and kill her. Like we, I, I, I don't know. It was just you see it coming. You feel it coming. <laughs> exactly, but it hurts every time I rewatch this episode. It hurts like a lot more mm-hmm. because you're just like, get away, get away, get away, get away, and she does not get away. Oh no! Yeah, I was so, rooting for Shazia. I was super drive, girl, for her drive. Too. I know she's so cute. She's so tiny. Um, so Mia takes Shazia to the shack outside her home and ties her up and gags her. She calmly tells Shazia that she's sorry. She fucked up and panicked. She asks uh-huh. her if her head hurts because she fucking slammed a rock into it. Ugh. All as if yeah. All as if to imply this was just her messing up and that she won't hurt her. She almost starts to believe... Uh, sorry, uh, you almost start to believe it until she says, what am I going to do with you? So Shazia begs for her life, yeah. promises she'll delete everything. She lies to Mia and tells her it's illegal for her to say anything, even if she wanted to. But Mia isn't fooled. Mm-hmm. She knows none of this is true. It's a scene that makes your gut ache each time you watch it, even if you know what's going to happen. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, because 
you kind of do think like Shazia, even like when you get the premise of what she's doing, you kind of think like, uh, this, this woman is going to be in trouble. Exactly. Because like you keep hoping that Mia will reconsider and your heart Uh clenches for Shazia, her hair matted with sweat clinging to her forehead the fear stark in her eyes. It chills you to hear her screaming, begging not only for her life, but her loved ones. When Mia asks her, does anyone know you were coming here? Oh, it's, this is... Yeah. Say yes, say yes. Yeah. Tell everyone... Say, like, you told no, everyone. No, Shazia says no. Do you know why? Why? Because oh, because she, she doesn't kn- want yeah. Mia to come after her family. Oh, exactly. She- exactly. But you could say, like... Well, I told my boss, I told, like, I've, it's in the company records, because that's harder. But Mia doesn't really care, because you know what Mia does? Uh, Kills her? No, she hooks Shazia up to the memory corroborator, because she knows that Shazia's lying. So anyone can use it then, like, it's not something that you have to learn how to use? Apparently not, I did think about that. But apparently not. Apparently it's easy enough that anyone can learn how to use it. It does feel like it'd be a complicated piece of technology, but guess not. Nope. So um, she hooks her up to the corroborator um, and we're left with Shazia sobbing as Mia uses the corroborator to view her memories to locate her husband and child. As the camera focuses on Mia's face, we see how expressionless it is despite Shazia sobbing in the background. Mia's crying silent tears, but personally I felt no sympathy for her knowing the kind of person she is. She calmly Uh goes to uh, get a large piece of wood and asks Shazia to close her eyes. At this point Shazia does and begins to say a prayer knowing there is no escape. Uh So I don't know if, like, because I had to rewatch the episode, obviously, to, um, you know, get a better feel for it. And I don't know whether it was just because my hormones were, my hormones were all over the place, um, or, you know, if the scene was actually very effective. But this scene always makes me cry. Um, because, like, especially uh, when uh, Shazia... Yeah, yeah, yeah. They, just from what you're describing... She, like, it's every time that Shazia says the prayer, it's just, okay, even though um, the prayer itself kind of bothered me because the prayer that she says is, um, inna lillahu wa inna ilayhi raji'un, which um, basically means we belong to God and to him we will return. So I'm, I'm more spiritual. I'm not an overly, like, I'm not religious. Okay, so, uh-huh. like, don't quote me on this. And if I'm wrong, I'm incredibly sorry for being wrong. But, um, and also because there are like various different sects of Islam, so maybe in one they do say this and in others they don't. But from what I know is that uh, is basically used by Muslims when we learn of someone's death. So if someone tells me that, oh, you know, my grandfather died, I would be like, oh, you know, like that's what I would uh-huh. say. But if I think that I'm going to die, 
the more appropriate prayer to say would be what's known as the shahada, which is, you know, I testify that there is no God but Allah and that, you know, Muhammad is the messenger of Allah. That's what you would say, you know, because if you know that you're going to die, those should be your last words from what I know. So I don't know if it was a lack of research. I don't know if Shazia is supposed to be, you know, a certain um, like um, maybe she's a she maybe she's not Sunni. Maybe she's something else. Like, I'm not sure. So if I'm wrong about that. Please do correct me. I would love to learn more. Um, But yeah, if I'm not wrong about that, then I'm kind of disappointed that they didn't do their research on this. I tried to look it up. I looked it up a lot, but like in every single sect of Islam that I could find, it says that no, the last thing you should say is there are different forms of the Shahada depending on what you follow. Um, Mm -hmm. But none of them said the prayer that Shazia says. So, but it still made me cry though because i was just like this is someone who's so desperate to live but knowing that there is no escape and is just sort of honestly these kinds of scenes always make me cry there was a scene in sandman um where a jewish man knew that you know death has come for him and he told death um wait wait just stop for a second and then he said a prayer you know basically like you know like the equivalent of shahada before Mm. you know yeah he the, the death escorted him and that made me cry too. <laughs> I don't know why. It just hits me in the feels. So uh, death is such like it's such a huge part of life. Like it Yeah. It's something that we have a lot of feelings about and when you get something that connects to Yeah. those feelings that we don't always address and that are always like under the surface it could bring up things that you haven't addressed or don't want to address or you know like our thoughts of the afterlife that we don't really want to think about as often exactly exactly um so at this point i felt absolutely no sympathy for mia even when she vomits outside after killing shazia and you know the reason why because she still killed her and not only that, because, like, you know, I, I'm sorry if it's going to feel rushed, because, like, towards the end of the episode, these things aren't as um, important as what happens in the beginning. It's basically right. because Mia never stops. She never stops to consider her ac- the consequences uh-huh. of her actions. She never stops to consider there might be another solution. You get, okay, so the first time it was anxiety. The second time it was panic. The third time, fourth time, fifth time. Because literally after she's done butchering Mia, she goes, uh, butchering uh, Shazia, sorry. She goes to Shazia's house. She kills her husband. She walks out of her husband's, like um she kills her husband in the bathroom she walks out of the bathroom she sees shazia's baby and she kills the fucking baby Wait, the, and then would the the baby be able to even yes this feels unnecessary oh, no. no you know why you know why because it turns out the baby was actually blind he was born blind so he didn't see anything but he got butchered by this absolute mad woman so the, just why? because why I don't because she didn't that. want to leave any witnesses. She didn't want to leave any witnesses. She literally butchered everyone in her way. And then you know what she did? I, uh, she just went. People? No, no. She just went to attend um, her son's Bugsy Malone school play. After doing all of that. 
Like, uh, well, and th- that just shows you the heartlessness and the lack of remorse. You know, like, she exactly. may not have wanted to do those things, but she also didn't shy away from them. You know, she, exactly. she was willing to do them. I think most people, the act of killing another person is absolutely repulsive. And you even if they can cause problems for you, you don't do it. But she was able to do it. And and that's the thing. Like the the ability to kill someone is something that most people don't have. Exactly. Exactly. And the thing is, she, like I said, she never stops. And that's when our like empathy sort of forms into basically a sense of disgust and hate. And, like, we can see her for the pathetic person that she is. And that's why I say I don't think Mia is a weak character. If you literally look up, you know, not looking at books, just look up how to write unsympathetic characters. The first thing you'll get is a bunch of people telling you, don't do it. Because readers need to be able to sympathize with their characters in order to form a connection. Especially if they're the protagonist of the story. Uh Bull fucking shit. You can write unsympathetic characters that are effective because do we like Mia? Absolutely fucking not. Do we want to watch the episode from start to finish? There's a very good chance that we do. Do you, Fern? I I get it. Like, I get it. I've, I've, this is, people get into true crime and let's be real, unless you're, some tween on TikTok, uh, most people don't find serial killers attractive like like exactly most people are repulsed but it's a repulsion that you can't stop watching like a train exactly exactly and the thing is it's a little trickier to write characters that way because when it's an actual killer we're drawn by our fascination by how humans can be like this you know by how a human Mm. being can do something like that to another human being we're drawn by the psychology we're basically i think there's a lot of cognitive dissonance that goes into that where we're trying to make sense of senseless violence but when it comes to characters we know this isn't real so what we want so The cognitive dissonance, instead of driving us to try to understand why this character behaved the way that they did, we're driven to reject it if it's not done well. Because we just go, this is unrealistic. I don't really want to, you know, watch this or read this or whatever. So Uh how do you go about not driving the reader or, you know, the viewer away? Right? What you can do is you can use contrast okay what do i mean by contrast contrast Mm -hmm. is go ahead give it a guess i was gonna say like um if you make the victim sympathetic that's uh, true i think that helps but also like you part of the thing is you also want to see mia brought to justice at a point you know you want to see her uh people react to what she's doing in a way that feels appropriate rather than condoning it and you want to see some sort of consequence like sometimes you get into something and you're like i have to see something bad happen to this person because i hate them so much (laughs) exactly exactly um and another way to do it other than like you remember like what you were saying is really interesting because it reminded me of the junji ito thing where he was like he draws really pretty protagonists because that helps him contrast with the 
horrifying monsters that he creates, right? So it's the Uh same thing here. But another way of contrast is to show us flashes of um, sympathy, right? So um, Crocodile does this very effectively because at the very beginning, we see Mia as this vulnerable character that's stuck in a really shitty situation. The reason I like came out and said like, oh, you know, you know, I I was talking about why didn't she go to the police later? Why didn't she do this? Why didn't she do that? Is because I've watched the episode multiple times. But if you're a first time viewer, you might, might miss out on that and think that, oh, you know, you see Rob yelling at her and being aggressive and telling her to get like the get the fuck out of here and toss this thing off the cliff, you know? Uh-huh. So we see that she's vulnerable and we see that this moment has haunted her throughout her life because even as a successful architect, she's very jumpy, fidgety, just like, you know, not as uh-huh. confident as she seemed uh-huh. at the very beginning of the episode before hitting the cyclist okay so that's one way to do it um another way to do it obviously um is to like that's not what they do in crocodile like they kind of do it in crocodile i guess is to try to show us that um the unsympathetic character is a victim in their own way and i feel like crocodile does that up until mia decides to kill shazia for me because when she kills Rob, I'm still, I'm not on her side, but honestly, because I hated Rob so much for being a selfish piece of shit, which is also kind of a a way Uh to contrast, I was still kind of on Mia's side. And it did horrify me to see how callous she was and how she was proceeding with her life despite having a dead body in her car. But I wasn't disgusted yet. Right. Well, and I th- yeah, yeah, mm. but and I think like one thing that I keeps jumping out at me is uh, she w- didn't want to go to the police. I think after Rob, she was out of Rob's presence because she didn't want to pay the price yeah. of whatever she would pay for being a part of it, which could have been nothing because the police do understand that if you're doing something under duress, it's not the same thing as like willfully choosing to do something. Yeah. You yeah. know, there's always a risk. They won't believe you, but you, you know, like the fact that you went to them right after it happened would really speak to your credit. Exactly. Um, but because she didn't do that, she had to pay for the price for her entire life. She had to live with it under all, her entire life, you know, waiting for the consequences to fall. And then they do. And, you know, it ends up being a trap that she can't get out of. Because at that point, no, you know, if the police find out about it 10 years after it happened or however long exactly. it was. Yeah. She, she no longer has that advantage of no one is going to believe her if she said like well i was an unwilling accomplice exactly exactly not at that point anyway yeah and and like i said because like i think the thing that hit me the most in the gut is that her lack of an ability to stop because she's just the kind of person that was like well you know i did one thing that was wrong i'm just going to keep doing it instead of doing what you said which is like I was forced to do this, but maybe I can make it right. She never once stops to consider that maybe she can make this right. She just keeps going and going and going. And I think that's, again, another way where you can present an unsympathetic character effectively is by using them to kind of 
present a cautionary tale to the mm -hmm. reader or the viewer. The right? price you pay for yes. not doing the right thing yes. is so much worse than the price that you would have to pay, uh, like the whatever punishment you would have to face for Precisely. coming forward. Because I, I do think the police would have been sympathetic and she would have yeah. seemed credible coming forward like right afterwards. Uh, you know, if she comes into the police office right afterwards, she's still hysterical, still like really upset and, uh, you know, describes Maybe she could have happened. even gotten away with like manslaughter or something. Well, I don't think, no, she wouldn't be charged with manslaughter because she's not the person who killed him. But she um, got rid of the body. Right, which would be something, uh, I don't know all the charges, especially not in Iceland, but it would be like um, tampering with a body after the facts mm. or hiding evidence, which tampering are lesser evidence, charges, yeah. lesser charges, right? Uh, and and a lot of times, because she, like, if you're do doing it under duress, a lot of times police don't charge you with it because you're not going to like a jury is going to be sympathetic she gets yeah. up on a stand and she's like crying and she's like i was so afraid he told me you know like he just killed someone in front of me and yeah, uh, yeah. i was afraid of what he would do very few juries and i think even judges are really gonna want to punish someone who was in that situation exactly. whereas no one is gonna believe her that much like the the price that you she paid was much deeper and have like much worse than exactly. uh, if she'd come forward and it lies under the water waiting to attack like a crocodile. Yeah, <laughs> but that's that, true. Cause that's the thing because there's crocodile tears, but crocodiles are also famous for lying in wait, and I wonder if that's a parallel between the consequences of her actions lying in yeah. wait but always there yeah Ex um there is a reason why they called it crocodile and um like well, it's go ahead uh, you want me to tell you yeah it's just like go well tell me <laughs> <laughs> i'll tell you at the very end but what i was saying okay, is that fair. like you said like for example presenting it as a cautionary tale um in like my take on it being a cautionary tale is the um like cautioning someone against you know how far you're willing to go to for self-preservation so there's actually mm -hmm. a really interesting article called um crocodile and the ethics of uh, self-preservation uh mm -hmm. it's not an article sorry i think it's a chapter in a book i'm going to link it below um give it a read if you want to so it's basically it examines uh the idea of like you know how far is too far because you know a character like fucking mia that goes Way is it plowing far. it's plowing through people yes it is plowing i said plowing in the kafka episode i'm sorry people it's plowing yes um, and i didn't tell you until after we were done recording because i wasn't sure if you wanted me to interrupt <laughs> you can interrupt it's okay i we're you know this podcast is a way for me to learn english <laughs> English. You speak English very well. I th <laughs> I think it just ends up being like a a dialect where everyone kind of says mispronounces the same words all together because I've noticed like other people from where you are do the same thing. So <laughs> I yeah. might just be a, considered a dialect at that point. Maybe. I wish I had a South African dialect. Henry fucking love it it is the sexiest accent out there i'm gonna cut this out accent. but i just it's needed really to tell you okay <laughs> okay so 
Um, what I was, yeah, so um, that's another way, sorry, in order to present an unsympath- un- unsympathetic character properly. So, yeah, I think uh, Crocodile does that very effectively. And just to wrap the, uh, like, the Black Mirror episode up, um, basically what happens in the end is that they catch Mia, you know how? Because um, uh, Shazia and her husband Ali, oh, no, no, her husband's name is not Ali. Her kid's name is Ali, I think. Shazia and her husband got her kid a fucking hamster, and the hamster sees Mia, and they use the memory corroborator on the hamster, and they catch Mia, and they go and they arrest her at her son's Bugsy Malone play. The hamster. The hamster saw it. Oh my gosh. That's insane. Yep. Yep. That's how it goes. Well, I'm sure she didn't think about that. Hammy told on her. Hammy squealed. Hammy squealed, and it was the last squeal he ever squealed. But anyway, no, yeah, just um, for the people for the people out there who want to know why crocodile is called crocodile, it's not because of crocodile tears. Um, so there's a book called Inside Black Mirror, and in Inside Black Mirror, Charlie Brooker explains it. So I'm going to read this. It's a direct quote from the book. He says that the genesis of the title actually relates to a previous incarnation of the script about the person who'd witnessed their mother's murder at the age of two. She'd grown into this very anxious person who saw the world as incredibly threatening. Here's the analogy. Imagine that your life is a simulated boat ride down a river. If you started playing that as a VR experience, it could be sunny and beautiful and you love it. But if it's scripted that occasional random events will happen, such as a crocodile attacking you, well now that's slightly different. And if you're really unlucky and a crocodile attacks you in the first minute of you playing that game, then you think you're in a horror game. You think, from that point on, I could get attacked at any moment, and you can never relax and enjoy the rest of that boat ride, because you think it's a crocodile attack simulator. So, crocodile is an analogy of somebody who's been traumatized at an early age and might be troubled by life forever and never able to relax. The story's completely changed since they came up with that idea, but they kept the title, and I think it works if you think about it um, through the whole, oh, crocodile tears um perspective and that's what i like about mia actually she again another way to present an unsympathetic character that's written well she is an understandable kind of human in the sense that Uh when she kills people she vomits she's sweaty she's pale she cries even though that doesn't mean squat diddly to me i don't sympathize with her i certainly don't empathize with her but I see that she's human. She's not a psychopath who has absolutely no remorse or guilt. Her Uh remorse and guilt just isn't enough to make a difference. And that's why, to me, she's more pathetic than she is evil. Okay? But I still want to find out, like, at this point, like you said, I want to watch till the end of the episode to see if she gets her comeuppance, you know? Uh So, 
yeah, that is that is my advice on how to write an unsympathetic uh, character well. Like we said, you can uh, contrast uh, contrast them with uh, well written sympathetic characters. Uh, you can show us um, a moment of redemption or a moment that where we can sympathize, especially if you use it earlier on. You can humanize the character. So even if your reader or viewer does not sympathize or empathize with them, they can still see them as human and realize that this is someone that they can see in real life um mm -hmm. you can use your story in order to caution the reader against becoming someone like this um so yeah and also uh, steer clear of the common mary sue and um gary stew pitfalls i guess what's the non-binary equivalent of mary sue and gary stew i'm gonna look at that up. there would have to be something more gender neutral Trying to think of something that rhymes with Mary that's a gender neutral name. And I'm drawing a blank. <laughs> I can't. Well, someone wrote, what is the gender neutral term for Mary Sue, Marty Sue, or Gary Sue? So, um, I'm looking it up. It's on Twitter. And obviously, Twitter is always right. So, uh,. <laughs> There are no there are no answers. People are just answering with memes. So, <laughs> why am I not surprised by that? Right, I hope there's some good true. memes. <laughs> Someone said airy ooh. I'm gonna ask my um, non-binary friend. I'm gonna ask okay. them. Okay. All right. Yes. But so we understand. yeah. That is how to write an unsympathetic character. I will link all of the stuff that I talked about in the podcast notes. There, It's not called the description. It's called the podcast notes. We're getting somewhere, people. <laughs> um, if you enjoyed this episode, please give us a follow. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, Spotify, and wherever you get your podcasts. Um, and if you really enjoyed this episode, feel free to give us a review. We would love to know what you think. Um, and uh, if you want to tell us more, if you want to tell us about the weird stuff happening in your life, make recommendations for themes, stuff we should talk about, have access to potential bloopers and trailers and art that's coming up that we're going to post um, on our social media. All our social, social media links are present in the podcast notes. We have an Instagram, Twitter, TikTok, and an email. Um, so yeah, uh, check those out. And what else? Am I forgetting anything? No, I think that's, I think that's, you got it. You got it all, Carl. I, I got it. <laughs> Boom. So tune Boom in next time, mind. next week, Woo. where Fern will talk to us about stuff that I'm not allowed to spoil. Anyway. We can talk. Have I, a, yeah, go ahead. Next week, it will be Gilderay. Gilderay. Which is, which is a French serial killer, possibly, possibly not, um, who had some wild lore attached to his name, and we are going to talk about it. Ex super excited for it. Super excited for all of her episodes this month. So, yes, have a very good morning, evening, afternoon, wherever you are. This is Crow, and this is Fern, signing, signing out. off. Bye.